Good afternoon. Uh, thanks for joining me today. Uh, if you're with me here today, it's because we're going to be talking about IMEs and second opinion uh, consultations in New Jersey. Uh, I've been sending out some chats this morning to everybody who joined us. Uh, we don't have to confine uh, your questions to just the topic at hand. So if you have any New Jersey workers' compensation questions, uh, please feel free to bring them uh, to me today. All right. So uh, today we're going to talk about IMEs in New Jersey in general. We're going to talk about uh, when we want to get a second opinion exam and what we can use a second opinion exam for in regards to ongoing medical care. I'm going to talk a little bit about legal best practices for getting uh, good IMEs and making sure they're set up correctly. And I'm really going to try to give as much practical advice as I can about uh, what we do with our IME reports, uh, how we're utilizing them in court, and things you need to look out for. Uh, as always, this is completely and totally live, so uh, please feel free to type questions into me. There should be a box on your screen if you're on a computer or an iPad, and you can type those questions in. I can see them pop up at the end. It's always my intention to answer as many questions as I can possibly get to. Please ask me questions because it makes it so much more fun uh, when there are questions. Uh, I will only say your first name and then I will answer your question the best I can. All right. So let's talk just briefly a little bit about medical evidence and the standards for medical evidence in a New Jersey workers' compensation case because we all know that in general, uh, the rules of evidence are relaxed. Then the judge can simply accept things that are already part of the medical record, things like the hospital record, intake notes, urgent care records, physician records. Uh, the judge of compensation is not strictly bound by our rules of evidence, which would normally exclude statements included, uh, just bare assertions of fact included in things like normal medical records and submitted maybe as part of a motion or before the, the judge. Uh, the appellate division is going to be a little bit more careful, so uh, should a case uh, come to a conclusion that you're not happy with and you decide to pursue some post-trial uh, practice, which would be an appeal in New Jersey's uh, case to the appellate division of the Superior Court, the appellate division standard really is whether the evidence was or should have been admissible. Uh, and in terms of selecting or giving credence to a doctor's opinion, a medical opinion, the judge of compensation has to rely on objective evidence within the record and there has to be an articulate reason uh, for uh, them to uh, select one physician over the other. Now, in the case, uh, which is the typical case, where the defense has presented their independent medical evaluation from the respondent's doctor, which makes a conclusion as to need for further care, reaching maximum medical improvement, or the nature and degree of permanent residual disability, and of course the petitioner has their own IME from their own physician, the judge of compensation doesn't have to pick one or the other. They can pick uh, and choose. They don't have to accept either medical expert, and they can kind of come to their own conclusion. Uh, sometimes my clients will say things like, well, our doctor says the person's a zero, no residual disability ready for the Olympics, and their doctor says, I mean, I can't believe this person could wheel themselves in here in their wheelchair. Uh, does the judge have to pick 50%? No. Uh, the judge can give credence to either uh, physician and say, you know, I'm going to give more credence to the respondent's physician because of their more thorough examination or time spent, or they can say I'm going to give more uh, credence to the uh, petitioner's expert and really pick and choose what they're going to accept out of those reports. Of course, when they're writing their decision for the appellate division, they're going to say, based on the objective findings found in the record, but uh, uh, in, in practice, really, that's going to be the judge having the opportunity to sort of craft that determination. Doesn't have to go with one or the other. Doesn't have to pick a winner. 
Now, in regards to treatment, that's one of the most common times that we're going to get an independent medical examination or need for treatment examination, and to a much lesser extent, a records review, and we'll talk about that in a second. Generally speaking, the judge of compensation is going to give the treating doctor deference. Uh, if there's a dispute about whether the claimant needs something, in general, the judge is going to go with the treating physician. And basically, the logic is, hey, this is the physician, first of all, that you picked respondent, because remember, in New Jersey, you're able to pick and choose your treating physician. And they're saying, this is what your own treating physician is suggesting. Really, you should be uh, authorizing and approving that unless it's wild or it's, unless it's really uh, beyond uh, a normal standard of care. Uh, now, I always ask the question of, yeah, maybe the physician wants to do X, Y, and Z, but does the petitioner actually want to get that care? And this will come up in the context of a motion for medical and temporary disability benefits. That's the motion that can be filed by the petitioner, which takes the case sort of outside of our uh, direction and control in regards to medical. This is the petitioner coming into court and saying, hello, court, uh, the treating physician has uh, given me this treatment course, but I really want to do this thing. Or the treating physician's telling the respondent, you should really be going in this direction, you should be authorizing this care, and the respondent's refusing to do it. Uh, that's when they can fire that mo file that motion, and we need to be very careful how we respond to it. Now, in general, uh, second opinions are just not given the weight that the treating physician is. Uh, of course, there are uh, uh, considerations for this where the, uh, the second opinion will be given great deference, and that's where the uh, evaluator or opinionator has a lot more experience or can bring something new or is doing a more thorough and better exam or, for example, is reviewing a radiograph, image, x-ray, MRI that maybe the treating physician didn't have access to. Also remember that in New Jersey, where treatment has been obtained, uh, but no advanced permission was sought, uh, and there's many reasons for why advanced permission cannot be sought. For example, the petitioner is incapacitated or was taken to the hospital. There was a very significant injury. You don't have an opportunity to direct and control care. Really, the standard that's going to be looked at is uh, looking backward standard. Did the standard actually improve the uh, petitioner's uh, position? Is that uh, was the treatment actually curative? So those are the things that we're going to look at looking backwards now. In regards to an opinion regarding the need for ongoing care or new or different care in general, I warn clients that a need for treatment exam, a second opinion exam, is just not going to be considered uh, given the same weight and deference as the treating doctor's opinion in this jurisdiction. So that's something to be mindful of. Now, independent medical examinations uh, are always relied upon and to determine the nature and extent of permanent residual disability and that would be for both a scheduled loss of use so the scheduled body parts hand finger feet toes eyes ears uh, etc uh, and also in regards to the permanent disability or permanent uh, uh, partial disability body parts so back neck neurological injuries psychiatric injuries psychological injuries all those types of things in this, the selection of our IME physician is key. Uh, we should be thinking whether, are we asking this doctor for a need for treatment exam, or are we seeking a permanency opinion? It should be very clear, and I would like to set up the exams very differently depending on what I'm looking for. Uh, the need for treatment exam, as we already mentioned, is typically done in the context of a motion for medical and temporary disability benefits. It is pretty abnormal in New Jersey to be using second opinions or IMEs to control medical care. Typically speaking, your adjuster, your risk professional, just picking up the phone and simply calling the medical professional uh, to direct and control care. Uh, you don't really need to get IMEs, need for treatments, and certainly not really record reviews uh, to dispute or challenge ongoing uh, cur current curative care. 
Uh, usually, uh, we are not using IMEs, we are not using second opinions to get to maximum medical improvement in New Jersey. In fact, you should expect your treating physicians to voluntarily find the petitioner has reached maximum medical improvement uh, along sort of normal medical guidelines and standards. This is very different, of course, than our sister state, New York, where no physician ever finds any claimant to have reached maximum medical improvement. We are short of getting an IME and using an independent evaluator to find that they have they finally maxed out of care. Um, more typically, IMEs in New Jersey are being used to determine uh, permanency. Use of record reviews, I strongly discourage. And the reason I discourage them is because, uh, in general, the judge of compensation is going to say, wait a second, did this reviewer have the opportunity to perform a thorough, complete, competent physical examination of the petitioner? If the answer to that is no, the judge of compensation is then generally going to defer to the treating physician or the physician who did have the opportunity to perform their own physical examination. I know it's counterintuitive, and in many states, records reviews are the standard. Uh, in New Jersey, though, I caution you, uh, they are not going to be as persuasive with the judge of compensation. All right, let's talk a little bit about what I'm looking for in an independent evaluator. Uh, first, I'm looking for someone with great qualifications. In general, our IME evaluators have much stronger and better credentials than the doctors that the uh, petitioner's attorneys are relying on for their examinations. Uh, the reason for that really is because we pay them more uh, than the petitioner's uh, uh, than the maximum fee schedule for uh, petitioners performing evaluations. In general, our IME evaluators, and the most typical one where we're looking at someone is for an orthopedic injury, are board-certified orthopedic surgeons. Uh, pretty much across the board, that's all we're using. Uh, we are never using a chiropractor uh, or physical therapy IMEs or anything else. We're usually using orthopedic surgeons and psychiatrists. Uh, for any neurologic or psychiatric uh, evaluations or neurologists. Those are the three specialties that we're using the most, and they're all really, I think it's table stakes to be uh, 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 board certified in that area of specialty. Next, I want this physician to perform a competent evaluation. Uh, that's, a, that's an evaluation that, for example, is if I'm asking them to evaluate for a right shoulder injury, I'm expecting them to also evaluate the left shoulder to provide me with contralateral uh, numbers and to perform a really thorough examination of the petitioner. I'm expecting my IME physician's office to administer a full questionnaire that I am typically going to be providing to the IME facilitator. Uh, I'm looking for a clear, simple report. I don't need a 400-page report in New Jersey. We're looking for a short report that gets to the point that records the objective findings, and that would be the findings of the physical examination, and then immediately move into their opinions as to the need for treatment or permanent residual disability, if any. Uh, I'm asking for a doctor, I'm looking for doctors, selecting doctors who testify well. Oftentimes my uh, clients or risk professionals will say, why do you use this doctor? I've been doing it for 100 years. I think because I've had them on the stand before, and this doctor testifies well, and they don't go off on adventures. Uh, they understand how to stand up to a cross-examination. Now, the entertaining moment about uh, uh, physicians in New Jersey is that we can help them prepare for their evaluation. Uh, we can certainly, I'm sorry, for their uh, testimony, uh, we can send them uh, records, materials. Let's talk about what you can send to them. Um, cover letter to the independent medical evaluator is table stakes, and I'm not talking about 
a form cover letter that somebody you know copied and pasted out of my handbook. We're looking for a really good cover letter that really specifically directs to the IME physician exactly what we're looking for. Is this a need for treat evaluation? Is this a permanency evaluation? What are the questions I need them to ask? And if I know specific things about this petitioner that I want brought out, for example, volunteer work, activities, personal things, I'm gonna put it in that IME letter because I really want the IME uh, evaluator to get to them. Next, I want them to complete a good questionnaire. I think that's part of a good examination. I am going to provide to our IME physician any non-medical documents that I think are gonna be useful in this evaluation, things like a job description. Uh, let's tell the IME evaluator exactly what this person's job was before. You know, not many uh, IME evaluators ever drove an over-the-road truck or unloaded or worked in a warehouse, right? So let's explain to them what actually duties are entailed in this position and what they're actually doing on a daily basis. Uh, if we have surveillance video, and this could be uh, just normal uh, routine surveillance video, just normal video of the person going about their daily business, that's very useful in New Jersey because activities of daily living and the impact on your activities of daily living should be considered by the workers' compensation law judge in determining the person's overall disability. So it is important to have this. But there's also other surveillance, things like hey, they've returned to work for us. We have video of them doing their current job in an unrestricted fashion. Let's provide that to the IME doctor. There's no reason to hold that back. There are really no limitations on how we can prepare and present information to our IME doctor in New Jersey. Uh, and for that reason, I think this is a real opportunity for us on the defense side to make sure that our doctor has everything they could possibly need to make an informed decision as to the need for further treatment or uh, permanent residual disability and, and providing us really with the best and most useful estimate they possibly can in regards to permanent residual disability. All right. Let's talk a little bit about missed IMEs because it's annoying. Uh, in New Jersey, you're not paying for the person's transportation in general, uh, and so missed IMEs are a real thing. So there are things you can do about it. First, in general, until the second missed IME, the judge of compensation, we're not going to get involved. Uh, you can file a motion to dismiss for lack of prosecution. It is not going to be granted if they've only missed one IME. Generally speaking, it's the second IME uh, where people start getting annoyed, and then you're going to file that motion to dismiss for lack of prosecution. If there is no opposition to the motion, it should be granted. So there is a uh, something you can do about missed IMEs. And certainly, what about the costs of the missed IME? So the IME doctor is still going to charge you $150, $200, $250 for holding that slot open. You should certainly let your defense counsel know, uh, and that should be recouped from the petitioner at the end of the case. If there's any money moving, let's say $5,000 on a Section 20 lump sum dismissal, you should get that money back for the missed IME because it was up to them. Why did they miss it? Uh, the other thing I like to remind people about in New Jersey is functional capacity evaluations can regularly be obtained. You do not need the permission of the court. Uh, this can be simply scheduled by your risk professional, and then it can be absolutely provided to the IME doctor. And in fact, I prefer for the IME doctor to then review the results of the functional capacity evaluation uh, so that it can make the best and most informed decision. Now, you don't need permission uh, or you file a motion or anything like that to do a functional capacity evaluation. The types of cases that a functional capacity evaluation is right for is going to be generally your high exposure case, uh, and I'm typically thinking of something like a low back or a neck case where the injuries and the objective findings are somewhat all over the place. Um, you know, maybe your unoperated back where the person's been out for two years, that's the moment to get a functional capacity evaluation. That's the moment where we're going to want to do some distraction testing. 
Waddell testing, really determine if this person is malingering or not, and really get to the bottom of what is their actual residual capacity? What can they actually do? All right. That's a pretty good and very quick overview of the basics of independent medical evaluations and need for treatment or second opinion evaluations in New Jersey. I'm hoping that I come over here to the questions section and I've got a bunch of good questions on this topic. All right, so far it looks like I got one here from Jim. Let's go to Jim. Uh, Jim says, uh, okay, uh, question regarding occupational disease claims. Client received the first notice of the claim petition alleging injury back to 2010, which was the last exposure. Not sure when the claimant is stating the illness manifested. What is the best way to defend or deny this claim? Okay, so first of all, you've got this claim. It's old as mold. Somehow nine years elapsed, and now they're discovering uh, that they have a condition which they believe may be related to your period of employment. First question is, do you have a statute of limitations defense in New Jersey? And you might. Um, so generally speaking, the way this case should be uh, handled would be to file an answer denying the compensability of this matter, putting the petitioner to their proofs, while you determine, A, do you have a statute of limitations defense, do you have a notice defense, or do you have any other defense that you could possibly raise, including lack of coverage, lack of employment during that period. How about no actual exposure? Whatever they're alleging that was their injurious exposure, maybe you didn't even have any of that in your employment. Maybe they've just brought a claim against everybody they ever worked for uh, because they've developed some type of cancer uh, post-retirement. So in general, uh, the way we respond to these would be uh, with an initial denial pleading, uh, putting the petitioner to their proofs, and then doing our normal discovery course to determine if any of our legal or, or jurisdictional defenses applies. All right, um, Angela asked the question, what about sharing surveillance video with opposing counsel when it's shared with the IME physician? What is time frame it has to be shared? Okay, so in general, New Jersey's got a great surveillance video rule. If you're raising fraud and you believe that the petitioner uh, is uh, acting in a fraudulent manner, uh, you can raise that as an issue in the workers' compensation court. You will get a hearing. The petitioner will testify. And then you will turn over the surveillance video to all parties, generally how it works. Uh, of course, if you're providing the surveillance video, which maybe doesn't show fraud, but does show their activities of daily living and what their actual uh, restrictions are to the IME physician, well, yeah, at that point, you're going to have to share it with all parties because that cover letter that you're sending to the IME physician, I generally share it with all parties and all the materials that I'm sending there because it's going to come out eventually anyway, and really we want to have uh, a fair playing field. This also, by the way, gives the opportunity to the petitioner to show the surveillance video to their own IME physician when they're getting their opinion in regards to permanency. So again, it makes the playing field fair, and again, uh, then if their physician actually reviews the video, it could actually change their opinion in regards to permanency. So I really want to see that. So that's how those are shared. Uh, all right, uh, Ashley asked the question. Uh, I have a New Jersey claimant that has continued to work, but last week went to physical therapy appointments during work hours. So he used his sick time for the time missed. I've now called the PT office to make sure he schedules appointments outside of work hours since they're open late. Is he due any wages or reimbursement for the previously used sick time? All right, so this is a great question. Uh, has nothing to do with our topic today, but I'm very happy to talk about it. No, in general, we should be telling petitioners, hey, look, you have work restrictions. Uh, or light duty work, or you're working unrestricted, but you still have treatment ongoing, you should be scheduling that outside of work hours in the short term because it's only a couple days. Yep, I would reimburse them for those partial days missed. 
the way to do that is uh, because he used his sick time to actually reimburse the employer for those days. Uh, but in general, we should be encouraging the petitioners to be getting their medical care outside of normal work hours because they have a normal job, just like everybody else. Um, all right, let me come down. Uh, Jim asked another question. Uh, how are telecommuting accidents handled? Uh, question mark. Same as any injury or any nuances or sections addressed in telecommuting? Okay, so cool question. Yeah, no, telecommuting cases are treated just like any other case, which is kind of insane. Uh, we actually have a case in New Jersey. It's called Renner, R-E-N-N-E-R versus AT&T. And this is a lady who keeled over, had a heart attack uh, at 2 in the morning at her house, and then later claimed that it was due from working so many hours and so late. And the analysis in that case doesn't really get uh, in depth into whether it happened at home or at work. It's really, were you engaging in something uh, was, uh, that arose out of in the course of your regular employment? Were you doing something for the benefit of your employer? And that's really what has to be shown. So the standard for telecommuting injuries or injuries where the person is working remotely, which is very common, we do it here in my office, uh, is the same for injuries that occur on your own premises. And the injury really has to arise out of in the course of, meaning they have to actually be doing something for the benefit of the employer at the time they have uh, their mishap. I've defended cases in which the petitioner admits, I was working from home and my dog was barking, so I took him out for a walk and I slipped and fell on ice in my own uh, driveway. Okay, great. That has nothing to do with your employment. Your employer did not direct you. You were not under our control. You were walking your dog. You slipped on your own property. This is not a workers' compensation accident. So really, we're going to analyze those the same way uh, we'll analyze the other ones. And Jim says, have you seen an increase in telecommuting claims? Yeah, I have, because more and more people are working from home, and they still think it's a gray area. I have got another telecommuting claim, which the person works from home, says they dropped something off of their desk and went to stand up and hit their head on their own file cabinet. Uh, and you got into these interesting questions of like, well, we don't, we didn't tell her to put the filing cabinet there, and you know, certainly the ergonomics of your home office are not under our control, but because she was working and it did happen at her desk and it could have happened in my location, that's when we accept it. So. Uh, interesting questions, and, and yes, there, these are opening up all sorts of interesting new issues. All right, so uh, a bunch of questions here. No questions on IME, so I must have done a super duper job. Uh, if I didn't reach your question, or if you have more questions for me, please feel free to reach out to me, email, phone, text, uh, whatever. Next month, uh, November 25th, we're going to meet back up, and we're going to talk about how we estimate permanent residual disability exposure in New Jersey. Where do these numbers come from? How do we get to them? And how do we provide estimates of exposure to our clients? All right, everybody. I hope you have a great and happy Halloween. Have a lot of fun. See you soon.